Good morning to you. It's great to, great to be with you. If you turn your Bibles open, please, to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. I want to look with you first at the foundational element of child-rearing in families, which I call family worship, family worship. We'll read Joshua 24, verses 14 through 18. Bear in mind, this is Joshua when he's 100 years old, saying farewell to the people of Israel. So listen to his courageous words here and his confident words that his children will go on and serve and worship the Lord for the generation to come. Joshua 24, verse 14, hear the word of God. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which are, were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But... As for me and my house, we will serve, or you could translate it, worship the Lord. And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve or worship other gods. For the Lord our God, he it is that brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, and which did those great signs in our sight." and preserved us in all the way wherein we went, and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, even the Amorites which dwelt in the land. Therefore will we also serve or worship the Lord, for He is our God. Thus far the reading of God's sacred, precious, infallible word Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank Thee so much for this opportunity, for this conference, for the wonderful themes that are being discussed, and we do pray that as we discuss the importance, the foundation, the duty, the implementation of family worship in these moments, that it may profoundly impact our lives, and that those who are doing family worship faithfully, intentionally, daily, may be strengthened, and that ideas for it may be augmented, and that they may do it more effectively as a result of this address, and that those who are not doing family worship would begin immediately, humbly, simply, and build a genuine family worship time into their families that day by day their family also would worship the living God. And I pray, Lord, that especially the pastors who are present would promote family worship in their churches and model it for their people and that thy kingdom might come in it and through it. So be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's quite remarkable if you go into a Christian bookstore today and you walk over to the section of church growth, you will seldom 
find even one page, much less a chapter, on family worship. All the talk is about getting people from the outside in, which is, of course, important. But it's also important to keep the people who are already inside stable and strong and to have those backbone families in your church that from generation to generation are solid, the young men becoming the elders and deacons of the church or, or ministers, and young women becoming godly mothers and godly wives. Every pastor has those families. Maybe it's five families in your church. Maybe it's just two or three. Or maybe it's a dozen or more where they're solid backbone families. Well, in my ministry over the years, I couldn't help but notice that the families who are the real backbone families of the church, generally speaking, not always one-to-one -one relationship, but generally speaking, they are precisely the families that have established a daily intentional pattern of family worship. When my parents had their 50th anniversary, each one of us five children decided we would talk to my mother about one thing to thank her, and each one of us would thank my dad for one thing. All five of us thanked my mother for her private prayer life. She was a prayer warrior. All five of us thanked my father for his family worships, especially the special family worship on Lord's Day evenings where he would read, in addition to reading the Bible and singing and praying, he would read Pilgrim's Progress to us for about a half an hour. And we would sit at his feet and ask him questions. And he'd set, often set the book down and he'd teach us about how the Holy Spirit works in the soul and the truths of God. He'd teach us with tears streaming down his face. And my brother, my older brother on that occasion said, Dad, I want, I want, you, I want to thank you for one thing that I never had to doubt the existence of God because my oldest memory in life was when I was three years old, sitting on your lap, looking up into your face in family worship, seeing the tears stream down your face as you talked to us about the living God. And my feeling at that moment was, God is real. So thanks, Dad, that I never had to doubt the existence of God. See, family worship is so valuable and so many fronts. It's really the foundation of the family, the foundation of child rearing. Matthew Henry, the famous Puritan commentator, said, as goes family worship, usually so goes the family. As goes the family, so goes the church. As goes the church, so goes the nation. As goes the nation, so goes the world. Just as we heard in the last talk, the foundational truths embedded in Genesis 1 to 11, there's a parallel here of the foundational method of child rearing and establishing a godly family through building off of this foundation we call family worship. I don't know if you remember, some of you older folk may, the space shuttle Columbia tragically disintegrating during its high-speed re-entry 
into the atmosphere in 2003, and all seven astronauts, you remember, were killed. What you probably didn't read about was that the lead astronaut, the captain of the crew, was Colonel Rick Husband, a godly evangelical Christian. And before he went into space, he gave his son 18 videos and his daughter 18 videos because he was going to be gone for 18 days, and he said, my son and my daughter, I don't want you to miss one day of family worship. I wonder what those 18 videos mean to those children today. You see, family worship is so critical because it's grounded in our very theology. Our God is a triune God. He's a God of familial relationships. His fatherly love overflows into the world He created because He created us in His image. And God deals with the human race through covenant, through headship, where fathers such as Abraham lead and represent families in God's promises. Sometimes in the New Testament, we see entire families converted together and called to grow in holiness together in the life of the church. That all speaks into this whole area that we train our children through family worship in the principles and truths of the Word of God. Doug Kelly has written, Family religion, which depends not a little on the household daily leading the family before God in worship, is one of the most powerful structures that the covenant-keeping God has given for the expansion of redemption through the generations so that countless multitudes may be brought into communion with and worship of the living God in the face of Jesus Christ. You don't have to study church history for long to come to the conclusion that during the 16th through the early 20th centuries, the Reformers, the Puritans, and then the Evangelicals engaged in daily family worship in such a way that hundreds of thousands of children were converted under the instrumentality of their own fathers, with their wives supporting them, of course, engaging them in family worship. And so family worship is not the only factor in child-rearing. We're, we're going to talk about that in the second talk. Second talk, I want to talk about the paradigm of being prophets, priests, and kings in your own home, dads, and leading your families in such a way that the whole of life is taken into the scope of your, the training of, of your children. But family worship is the foundation of all of that, you see. Now, of course, if you're a hypocrite in every other area of your life and you do family worship well, you're going to defeat the purpose of family worship. So family worship doesn't stand alone. Spontaneous teaching that arises throughout a typical day outside of family worship, of course, is also crucial. But family worship is the foundation of biblical child rearing. And I want to look at that with you then in four thoughts. First, we'll look at the duty of it. Then we'll spend half or more of our time on the implementation of it, exactly how to do it. I want to give you some practical guidelines in all four of its areas. And then we'll look briefly at objections against it and conclude with motivations for it. So duty, 
implementation, objections, and motivation. Now, when Joshua made his famous statement, as for me and my family, we will worship the Lord. You recall I said he was 100 years old. He's passing off of the scene, and yet he's confident his children will continue what the Puritans called a holy habit, the holy habit of family worship. In verse 31 of this chapter, Joshua 24, says that Israel, that's the whole nation because kings had profound impact on the whole nation in those days, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, so the next generation, which had known all the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. Now, if you knew right now that worshiping the Lord every day in your family would impact people beyond your family, but also your own family, and at least for another whole generation, and perhaps more, perhaps two to five to ten generations, you would begin to understand, don't you think, the importance of this glorious, critical subject in duty. But what exactly are we to do? What does the Bible command us to do in family worship? Well, four things. First of all, of course, is the daily reading of the Word of God. I hope I don't have to explain to an audience like this that reading the Bible every day to your family is absolutely fundamental, foundational, basic to child rearing. Paul said to Timothy, he knew he had grown up under the Scriptures daily. His mother, his grandmother, uh, in this case, were teaching him the Word of God, reading it together with him. So let me just move on because that's an obvious one. The second one is the big one that is often not done, daily instruction in the Word of God. You see, our forefathers would take the Word of God, read it with their children, but they wouldn't close the Bible and say, this is done for the day. The father would then expound to his children through Q&A and through discussion the major takeaways of that chapter knowing that if he did that all throughout the Bible, since the Bible talks about every subject under the sun, he would be training his children about every subject under the sun over that 20-year period when he had those children in his home. And so family worship, you see, was critical because this is the gateway for the father habitually, daily, to teach his children the major truths of the Word of God. Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7 puts it this way, These words which I command thee this day shall be in thy heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently to thy children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. That's just a Hebrew expression saying, this is something you do every day. Every day, you read the Word of God, every day you instruct your children from the Word of God. Number three, daily prayer to the throne of God. First Timothy 4, 4 and 5. 
everything should be sanctified by prayer, Paul says to Timothy. Even your food and drink, everything should be received with thanksgiving and sanctified by the Word of God and by prayer. Jeremiah tells us that God will pour out, think about this, His fury, not just His anger, that's severe, His fury upon those families that don't pray together. Puritan Thomas Brooks said, a family that doesn't pray daily together is like a house without a roof exposed to all the storms of heaven. This is an obvious thing we need to do. Our families have sins that we need to confess every day. Our families have reasons for thanksgiving every day. Our families have needs to supplicate for every day. And every day our families must be lifted up by you as father of the household to adore and glorify and lift up Almighty God so that you might pull down the benediction of the Most High upon your family. And then fourth, fourth, daily singing of the praises of God. Psalm 118, verse 15, says the voice of rejoicing and singing is heard in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Well, obviously, this is a clear reference to singing. Philip Henry, the father of the famous Matthew Henry, said this text is a biblical basis for the daily singing of psalms, being the canonical book for singing in the Bible, in our families, or today perhaps classic hymns, or or great God-centered pieces of music. You see, the Reformers and Puritans, when they did family worship, they put singing at the end of their family worship, because they said singing lasts the longest on the memory. So you want to close off your family worship with singing. That's how practical uh, they were. And so these are the four duties to do. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we must implement family worship in our homes. And if you would be female or your, your mom without a, a, a father in the house or without a husband, you take this role as well. If you are married and your husband leads the family worship, you're in a supportive role. As he asks questions, you jump in and help facilitate the conversation. God requires that of us privately in our families, just like he requires of of us publicly as members of the covenant body and community that we worship him publicly in his house. Puritan said family worship is like a little mini worship service in your own home. You to have a little church in your house. The Lord Jesus is worthy of it, said Thomas Brooks. God's word commands it. And your conscience affirms it is your duty. Your family owes its allegiance to God. And especially you, Dad, especially if you're a pastor, all the more. You you are to be an example for your whole flock. 
You are more than friends and advisors to your children. As their teacher and ruler in the home, your example and leadership are crucial. So clothed with holy authority, you owe to your children prophetical teaching, priestly intercession, royal guidance, as we'll hear in the next talk, but that begins with family worship. As you worship God together daily by scripture, by prayer, and by song. Now, family worship has fallen into such bad times today that some people don't even know they're supposed to be doing it. Do you know that in the Puritan age, when the elders would come by once a year and visit each family, an elder and a minister, and ask questions about how things are going in the family, they would always ask the question about family worship. How is family worship going? And if you said, well, I'm sorry, I, it's a hit and miss thing, or, or worse yet, you said, I really don't do it, they would say, well, we'll come back next year, and if you're still not doing it then, we'll have to talk with the, with, with the session about putting you under censor and forbid you from partaking of the sacraments because you are failing in the major area of child rearing. I mean, that is so far from our consciousness today. This is the forgotten means of grace, family worship in our own homes, and yet it is our duty. God said to Abraham, I know, Abraham, that he will command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. Well, how do you do it, though? That's my second point, implementing it. How do you do it? Well, first let me say just a quick word on preparing for it. We found that it was best in our family. We're empty nesters now, but we still do family worship with the two of us. But we found it was best to have a place separate from the kitchen table. After supper, we would do it. We'd go into the living room. We had three children. We'd have our five piles of books. It's all organized. You have your Bible there. You have your, your, your Psalter, your hymn book there. You have maybe a daily devotional. You might be reading parts of there or maybe some other book you're studying there. So it, it's organized. That's important. Then second, during family worship, aim for brevity. If, you, if you're not doing it, you might want to start out with just four or five minutes and then build up to 10, 15 or so. But don't, don't have long family worships or don't do it for an hour one day and skip it the next. That's like uh, pigging out one day and then the next day having no food. You see... There's parallels between giving your family spiritual food and giving them physical food. And three, don't indulge excuses to avoid family worship. Don't say, well, I just had an argument with one of the children, so I don't feel like doing it. I think I'll skip it for tonight. <laughs> no, no. Actually, you need it more than ever. And you need to apologize to the child. You need to ask for forgiveness in your prayer. And then... Do family worship. And don't say, I'm just so exhausted. I worked so hard today. I, I'm just too tired to do it. Well, Jesus was pretty tired, don't you think? When he took the cross of Calvary on his shoulders and persevered, loving you to the very end, you can do a 10-minute family worship. 
Just ask him to help you. And as you engage in it, you'll probably lose your tiredness as well. And four, lead family worship with a firm fatherly hand and a soft, penitent heart. Speak with hopeful solemnity. Talk naturally yet reverently during this time, using the tone you would use when speaking to a deeply respected friend about a serious matter. Expect great things from a great covenant-keeping God. Well, let's get more specific now. Let's talk just a few minutes about each one of these four aspects of family worship. Number one, reading the scriptures. Have a plan. Have a plan. When the children are below the age of eight and haven't learned the principles of abstract thinking very well yet, probably you're going to want to have a predominant number of family worships revolve around stories in the Bible or histories. The, the, the book of Genesis would, would be great. Uh, Jonah, uh, Ruth, the four Gospels. But when they reach the age of eight or nine or more, give them the whole Bible. J.C. Ryle said a whole Bible makes a whole Christian. And feed them from the Old Testament, perhaps one day, and the new, the next. Or do like the Puritans. They usually had two family worship periods per day, morning and evening. They did Old Testament in the morning, New Testament in the evening. But whatever you do, have a system so that as your children grow older, they will receive the whole word of God. Account for special occasions. Uh, my dad always did Psalm 91 or Psalm 121 when we were going on vacation in the summer. The whole car would be packed. He'd say, okay, children, let's back in the house. Let's have a family worship before we go. And he would pray and we get down on our knees and he'd pray and then he'd read Psalm 91 and 121 about the angels protecting and about no evil befalling us. And that became a, kind of like a tradition in the home that we cherished. Or if you're going to have Lord's Supper that morning in your morning family worship before you leave for church, maybe you want to read Matthew 26. So don't be afraid to break out of the pattern from time to time. Involve the whole family in the reading, if you can, if they're all able to read. So say we're going to read 20 verses when our kids were at home. I'd say, children, let's all read four verses each because there's five in the family. That way they're involved, you see, in the reading. And of course they know they're going to be asked questions when the reading is done. Now, what about the biblical instruction part? Well, there are a number of different ways to do this. Uh, but the key goal is that you are talking together with your children about the major takeaways from that particular chapter every day so that they receive practical, spiritual, experiential, doctrinal, biblical instruction from every chapter of the Bible. The way the Reformers and Puritans did it is they asked questions. The father would ask a question to each child at that child's level. And that took preparation time. So it was typical for a father to have an hour or so 
personal devotions early in the morning, and the father would then prepare the family worship, prepare the questions. Today, what I find, I've preached on this subject many different countries around the world, and I find a commonality in every country, including America, that fathers have a very hard time spending time to prepare for family worship. It's all we can do to get them to do family worship. And so about 10 years ago, there were a number of us who got together uh, and we produced this family worship Bible guide which does exactly what a father needs to do. So every chapter, all 1,169 chapters are in here. Every chapter has two or three major takeaways. Points about that long, takes about 45 seconds to read. So after you get done reading, you simply read this to your children and they end with a question. And then the your wife jumps in, or one of your older children perhaps jumps in, and your younger children get involved. And then from there, you just naturally, you see, discuss things. Maybe, maybe only for a minute or two, or maybe you've got some spin-off questions from that that just come to your mind, and you go three or four minutes, so be it. Maybe your children will take the discussion in a bit of a different direction. That's okay, too. You're talking about the things of God every day. That's what's critical. And so, this Family Worship Bible Guide is by far our best-selling book at Reformation Heritage Books. They're out on the table there. We're nonprofit ministry. All our titles at conferences are 50% off, so it's very reasonable. Get yourself one of these and get one for the children as well. They can follow along, read with you, and you'll find that it will transform. It will transform your family worship as thousands of other fathers have found. Now, as you use the Family Worship Bible Guide to get going, don't forget to be relevant in application yourself. Try to share your own spiritual experiences with your children or something from church history or something from one of the Bible histories or, or something from maybe someone in your church. We had a woman who was wonderfully converted through reading Psalm 31 verse 15. Well, when we come to that chapter, I explain that story to my children because I want my children to know that God works in wonderful ways still today, not just in church history. And then be affectionate in manner. A perfect model here is the author to the book of Hebrew, uh, sorry, author to the book of Proverbs. The way he talks to his children is just amazing. Come here, my son. I will teach you understanding. And with understanding, I will impart wisdom. That's what, you're, that's what family worship is to be like. A kind of a fatherly, affectionate communication between you and your children. When your children are young, you put one on one knee and one on the other. You put your arms around them. You let them look into your face. You talk eyeball to eyeball with love, with compassion. My dad was good at that. He used to pray so many times, oh Lord, we cannot miss any of our children on the right side of Christ in the great day of days. Oh Lord, let their lives be nothing but a preparation to meet Christ in his righteousness and in his peace. And then when all five of us children were converted and a few of my older brothers and sisters were, had, had children, he'd say, Lord, we can't miss any of the grandchildren 
Save them all. And he talked to us like that, you see. He, he loved our souls. And we knew that. Sometimes I wondered if he loved our physical things or our body. Or, you know. But my mother took care of that. But my dad loved our soul. So did my mother, of course. But the point I'm making is, well, J.C. Ryle put it this way, soul love is the soul of all love. And when you as a dad get more excited about the ball game, some, some ball game that you listen to, than you do about Jesus Christ and the cross and his resurrection and exaltation and intercession into heaven, your children will pick up on that. from time to time, and you are filled with a holy excitement over the great truths of God and the wonders of the gospel, they'll pick up on that as well. They need to know as you talk to them that you love their soul. They need to know that your soul's destiny lays heavy on their hearts. They need to know, you need to know, as your children need to know, that you are passionate that they would be born again and come to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And then require attention. You know, you only have to say it once or twice and they get the point. But if your son, for example, slops down with family worship, he's on one elbow on the couch and his leg is over the end of the couch, you say, oh, wait a minute, my son. We're worshiping God. Sit up. Once or twice will be enough. You see, there's a, there's a sacredness about this family worship time. This is, this is not a casual little chat. This is you bringing your children the word of the living God. If the phone rings, you let it ring, of course. Your audience with the living God is far more important than your audience with a few people. You have an answering machine. This is your sacred time. This is your holy of holies family time where you do family worship. And then for praying, the prayer in family worship, what we would do is we would, I would do the opening prayer and then I have my wife and my children do the closing prayer, taking turns. Now, for that prayer, we should be short. And by short, I mean maybe three, four minutes, would be good, five minutes maybe. I don't mean 30 seconds. I don't mean something casual and flippant. There's a lot to pray for. But what I do mean is don't go on and on. And don't, don't make your children feel like family worship is never going to end. Don't teach in your prayer. You pray in your prayer. You teach with your eyes open. You pray with your eyes shut. Be simple without being shallow. Don't have your prayers descend into trivialities. Don't make them a grocery shopping list of everything you want. One of the best ways we, we found to teach our children how to pray is to use the Acts formula. First, you adore God, adoration. You tell God how wonderful, how great he is in his attributes. Then you confess, see, you confess your sins. Then you spread out your tea, your thanksgivings, and then you bring your s, your supplications to God. And train your children to pray 
from when they're very young. The Holy Spirit, of course, alone can teach them to genuinely pray. But what we did was, and you can do your own way, of course, but when they were three years old, I would say to them, okay, now you can do the daddy's prayer tonight, the closing daddy's prayer. And uh, I will whisper into your ear, and you repeat it. I whisper something, you repeat it. So we'd pray for a couple minutes that way. So really, all the words that were coming out of their mouth were, were my words. When they're four years old, I'd say to them, now you start the prayer, and when you get stuck, you just kind of poke, poke me in the stomach, and I will know you're stuck, and I'll then jump in and, and give you some more words in your, in your ears, and you repeat them. And when they're seven years old, I'd say, okay, now you take the whole prayer yourself. And that way, when you have friends over, uh, say they're eight years old now, and they have their eight-year-old friend from school over, or from the neighborhood, and of course the friend stays for family worship. By the way, if you do family worship after supper time, it's a great time because if you're a hospitable family, especially as a pastor, you have to be given to hospitality. You're going to have a lot of families over from a lot of different backgrounds in a year's time, I'm sure. And even when you bring ungodly neighbors over, you just say to them right after supper, well, we go in the living room now. We have a, a little bit of family worship, so you can join us. You can sit here or you can sit there. You don't ask them, you know, do you have time to stay with? No, no. They've just had a meal from you, and uh, you just pull them along into the living room. Um, we've never had a single family ever refuse any meal, any meal we've given them. We've invited them to family worship afterward. We've never had one family in our entire lifetime of marriage say, no, I've got, we've got to go right away. It doesn't take that long. I said, we just, we just do family worship for a few minutes. Please join us. Well, when there are children there, and children... Your children pray in front of their peers at that age. It's amazing what a profound impact that makes upon the children from the other families and their parents. See, the Holy Spirit alone can convert them. You can't do that. But you see, you can be a means to set the truth before them, and God can bless those means to their conversion. So teach your children how to pray from when they're very young. And then what about singing? Well, sing doctrinally pure songs, first and foremost. No excuse, no excuse for singing songs that contradict what you're teaching them from the Bible. And don't forget to sing the Psalms. They're so God-centered. Calvin said they're an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. And teach your children to sing heartily and with feeling. Colossians 3, whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, not unto men. And when you go to bed at night, I trust you get down on your knees beside your wife at your bedside. And I hope you're sharing prayers. Oh, that's what we do anyway. My wife prays one night, I pray the next. You know, it's not just a family <laughs> that prays together that will stay together. There's a lot of truth in that old adage, by the way. It's also a marriage where husband and wife pray together alone that they will stay together. There's something beautiful as a husband to hear 
the feminine side of prayer coming from my wife. You support one another in these prayers. And when you pray together at night, you can just pray together. Lord, bless our feeble efforts today in family worship to the well-being of the never-dying souls of our children. Now, what about objections? Very briefly, what about objections to family worship? Well, there's several of them. Our family doesn't have time for this. The great evangelist Samuel Davies, who Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones called the greatest preacher America ever had, he said this, pray, what is time given to you for? Have you no time for the greatest business of your life? Things that are very, very, very important. We make time for, don't we? Well, family worship is very, very, very important. Just make time for it. There's no regular time when we can all be together. That's probably the most feasible objection. I didn't think so when our kids were young. But when they got to college, this was difficult. If I could change one thing when I look back, upon my parenting with regard to family worship, I would have taken the time when one of them could not make the family worship time, when they did come home later that night, I would have just taken them aside and said, let's just have a five-minute family worship, just you and me. I wish I had done that, but I didn't. But I recommend it to you so that this objection could be completely taken out of the way. Our family's too small. No, it's not. Where two or three, just you and your wife, are together in God's name, I will be in the midst of you. Our family is too diverse for everyone to profit. Not really. Young children can hear your prayers. They won't understand everything but they will get impressions even from the parts they don't understand. They'll get impressions. And older children, when they hear you talking to the younger children, if they start to whine and complain that this is boring, you just tell them, look, son, a few years from now, you'll probably be married in a few more years, a few more blinks of time, and you'll have your own children, so you better listen to how I'm teaching your little brother and sister right now so that you can be prepared to teach them yourself. I'm not very good at leading family worship. Well, God doesn't say, I command you to do those things in life only that you're very good at. And you won't get very good at it by not doing it. So you just start it. You get the family worship Bible guide. It's not that hard. You read the Bible together. You read this, you ask the question, you have a little discussion, and you pray, and you sing. Matthew Henry said, it takes no uncommon ability to lead family worship unto edification. See, you don't have to be a minister to do it. You don't have to be a theologian to do it. Actually, sincerity of heart is the most important prerequisite. You have to mean it. Your children have to feel that you care about them. Some of our family members won't participate. Last objection. Well, 
if you're not doing family worship at all, what I would advise you to do is to go home, say to your, pull your children together with your spouse and say, dear family, I, I really didn't realize much about my duty for family worship. I heard a talk today. I'm very, very sorry. I've been neglecting something very important. Would you please cooperate with me? And we'll just start out with a family worship of five minutes a day. And if your son is very rebellious and says, Dad, I won't participate in it, you say, son, you live under our roof. We love you. We give you physical food. We give you everything you need, but we also need to give you daily spiritual food. So you will join us. As for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. We will worship the Lord. Well, finally, <coughs> what about motivations? What about motivations? How can I be motivated to do this? Well, let me give you five quick motivations before I close. Number one, the eternal welfare of your loved ones. The eternal welfare of your loved ones. Train up a child. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. You train them fundamentally in family worship. There's other ways. We'll hear about that in the next talk momentarily. But family worship is key to the whole training process. Number two, the satisfaction of a good conscience Satisfaction of a good conscience. When Matthew Henry came to die, he, ga he gathered his children around him on his deathbed, and he asked for their forgiveness for all his shortcomings, and they all forgave him. And then he turned to them and he said this, but children, I don't want any of you to dare to meet me on the wrong side of Christ on the day of judgment. Despite my flaws, despite my faults, and you know them well, I have lifted up Jesus Christ every day to you in family worship. I expect to meet you on the right side of Christ. You say, wow, that's bold. Well, why could he be bold? Because he had a free conscience. Because he had talked to his, talked to his children day by day about the things necessary to live in comfort and to die in peace. And then, a third motivation is assistance in child rearing. You know, when our children were young, we were really afraid. We heard so many horror stories from parents who had difficulty with teenagers. We were actually afraid about bringing them through the teen years. But what we discovered was that family worship was a gift for the teen years. Family worship is like putting money in the bank ahead of time. Because when you, when you have family worship and you talk about every subject under the sun, you see, when they hit the teen years, they keep talking to you about everything because this is the pattern established in the family. I'll never forget when I went to talk to my son about the facts of life. I think I did it when he was 10 or 11 because I wanted to do it before the world did it. And... I sat him down, and I was actually a little bit nervous. I'd never done anything like this before. But as I began to talk, I realized this wasn't all that big of a deal to talk to them about the facts of life. Because I had talked to them about spiritual intimacies with Christ. 
And apparently my son agreed. It wasn't a big deal because when I got done, I said, you know, if you have any questions, come to me anytime. He said, no problem, Dad. What's for supper? <laughs> you, you know, when you have an open relationship with your children, you see, that's priceless for the teen years. And family worship gives you that foundation. And then love for God in his church. See, we think only of our own little nuclear families, don't we? We're, in the West, we're so selfish. You look at your wife and you say, shall we have another child, my dear? Well, what do you want? What do I want? And you discuss it and you two just make the decision. Here's how the Puritans would discuss it. My dear, you, you, you've had a child recently. Uh, are you in strong enough condition? We, we could try to have another child for the church's sake and for the commonwealth's sake that we could populate the earth with the, with the God-fearing. Did you ever say to your wife, let's try to have another child for the welfare of the United States of America? You see, it's not just about you. In fact, you, you, the goal of your little nuclear family, the real goal is you want, through your training, with the Holy Spirit blessing it, you want them to be folded into the larger eternal family of God that will never die around the throne of the Lamb in glory. That's what you want. Because your little nuclear family won't exist in eternity. But you want your children folded into that bigger family, saved by grace alone. Love for God in his triumphant church and love for God in his militant church here on earth. And fifth, the shortness of time. The shortness of time. You know, if you do the math, you have 365 days a year. If you have your ch children for 20 years, that's only 7,300 times you have to talk to them. If you do family worship once a day, 14.6 thousand if you do it twice a day. But that time goes like that. I mean, you blink a couple times. Those of you who are grandparents know that. You blink a couple times and your children are gone. And now you get the, the joy of having little mini family worships now and then with your grandchildren. That's wonderful too. But you see, those times are so short, so short. I was in Eastern Europe one time when I got assaulted I was coming back from a talk on systematic theology. I opened my, my door and a couple of guys came down from the floor above and before I could lock it from the inside, they pushed open the door, brandished a knife, struck me in the face, made me lay prone, tied me up, gagged me, put a blindfold around my eyes, tied my ankles, tied my wrists behind my back and kept shouting they were the mafia and kept running a knife up and down my back and slapping the side of my face. I never dreamed that I would come out of that alive. They had told me, if you're in the hands of the mafia, you're a dead man. So I'm laying there, and I'm thinking, thinking about a lot of things. And by the grace of God, one promise after another about the blood of Christ came flowing through my mind wonderfully. They gave me peace. But Every once in a while, I laid there for 45 minutes like that, but every once in a while, I would have a, a wayward thought. And one time I was thinking while I was praying for my children, see, if only, if only I could talk with them one more time, what, what would I say? 
What would I say? And not because I'm a, I was a great dad. There would have been, I promise you, there would have been hundreds of subjects I never would have talked about with my children were it not for family worship. But oh, thank God for family worship. I couldn't think of anything we hadn't talked about because of family worship. So make use of every day. Make use of every day. And maybe, maybe some of you are feeling very guilty right now and you're saying, well, we failed completely our children out of the home. Now what are we to do? But God says he'll restore the years the locusts have eaten. You can go back to your children. And you can confess your shortcoming. And ask your children to do what you didn't do. I mean, do that tactfully. But you can also, as grandparents, you can take your children out to eat. Or you can bring your grandchildren. You can bring them over to your home. And you, you can begin to do what you didn't do with your children. Well, I want to close this address with a little story, and I hope that if, even if you forget everything else I said this morning, and you remember this, you get the gist of it all. This is the kind of relationship, this story, that we should develop with God's help with our children. It's about John Payton, who went to the cannibals spent decades ministering to the cannibals and was used for the conversion of thousands of them. He tells a story 60 years after it happened that when his father walked him six miles from his home as he went to university and then said goodbye to him, he tells it in this way. After six miles, we reached the appointed parting place. My father grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, son. Your father's God bless you and keep you from evil. And then, unable to say more, his lips kept quivering in silent prayer. In tears, we embraced and parted. I ran as fast as I could and went about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me. I looked back and saw him still standing with head uncovered where I, where I left him gazing after me. Waving my hat goodbye, I was around the corner in an instant, but my heart was too, too full, too sore to carry me further. So I darted into the side of the road and wept for a while. And then rising cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood there and caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike, looking after me, but he did not see me. And after a while, he got down and set his face toward home, but I noticed his head was still uncovered, so I know he was still praying for me. I watched through blinding tears until his form faded from my gaze. And then hastening on my way, I vowed, I vowed often and deeply by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve and dishonor such a father and such a mother as he had given me. The appearance of my father when we parted, his advice, his tears, the prayers, the road, the dike, the climbing up on it, the walking away head uncovered, have often all through my life risen vividly before my mind and do so now while I am writing 60 years later as if it happened an hour ago. In my earlier years, particularly when exposed to many temptations, my father's parting form would rise before me almost like that of a guardian angel. It's no Phariseeism, 
but deep gratitude, which makes me here testify that the memory of that scene not only helped by God's grace to keep me pure from prevailing sins, but also stimulated me in all my studies that I might not fall short of his hopes, and in all my Christian duties I might faithfully follow my Father's shining example. And then here it comes. How much my Father's prayers at this time impress me, I can never explain, nor can any stranger ever understand. But when on his knees and all of us around him in family worship, he would pour out his whole soul in tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus and for our every personal need. And we would all feel as if we were in the presence of the living Savior. And we all learn to love and to know him as our Savior, our divine friend, and our Lord. And as we would rise from our knees, I used to steal a look at the light on my father's face and wish I were like him in spirit, hoping that in answer to his prayers, I might be privileged to carry the gospel to the heathen world in some way. No coincidence that John Payton, missionary to the cannibals, and persevered to the end. Even though his wife died, his child died, his home was burned to the ground, and one night he climbed up into a because he was afraid the cannibals would capture him. This was at the beginning of his ministry there, and eat him. And there in the tree, he cried out to God in all his loneliness, and he said it was as if capital golden letters filled the sky that said, I will be with you always, even unto the end of the world. God help us to be godly fathers who lead our family in godly family worship. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, please help us. We need thee, Lord. We're so insufficient. We're so weak. We're, we're so accustomed to the culture of this world and not living godly and not conscientiously doing daily family worship with our children. Help us, Lord, to change our ways immediately and to do it so that the question is not, shall I do it, yes or no, but the question is, Lord, wilt thou bless it as I do it to the well-being, the eternal and natural well-being of every one of our children. So be near to us, Lord, and help us to engage in humble, sincere, daily, intentional, biblical, doctrinal, experiential, practical family worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.